Before we begin this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have the ability to come immediately before your throne of grace. What a tremendous privilege it is for us as church-age believers to have this direct access because Jesus Christ has split the veil and opened the way for us. And that because he is our great high priest, we have immediate access to you. Father, we come to you in gratitude for all that you have provided for us, for this building, for all the many grace blessings in our lives, the spiritual blessings with which you blessed us at the instant of salvation. And Father, now as we study your word, it's the highest form of worship as we learn all that you have provided for us, that we may learn how to exploit in this life all that you have given us, and that we may serve you as you have saved us and redeemed us for a purpose. And now as we study your word, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that we may come to understand the basic dynamics of our Christian life even more in order to grow and advance in the spiritual life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If I seem a little disjointed this morning, I have managed to, I don't know how this happens, but somehow I managed to not only catch my wife's cold, so I'm on drugs for that, but I also have a pinched nerve in my back that allows me to sit for a total of two minutes at the computer and then I'm in such pain that I can't do anything more. So I'm on drugs for that. So I'm not really sure where I am, if you know what I mean. Sort of one of those mentally cloudy days. Okay, where are we in this series? We started this as a basic series uh, two or three months ago. And the reason is, is because many people just don't understand what the foundation is that God has provided for us in our spiritual life. And this foundation is a grace foundation that we are to learn and master early on in our spiritual growth. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wrote the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, it's within approximately three years of his first visit to Corinth. And so most of the people that he is addressing have been believers for less than three years. And he addresses them and castigates them because he says, by now you should be mature. So that indicates that believers should be on somewhat of a fast track and move from immaturity to maturity within a relatively short amount of time, not 10, 15, 20, or 30 years. The problem we have today is that so little is taught, so little from the Word of God is fed to believers in order to provide the spiritual nourishment and foundation for their spiritual growth that we end up producing nurseries that last forever. One of my favorite lines is one that was uh, made by Dr. Earl Rodmacher, who's now Chancellor of Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary, at a pastor's conference I attended some 15 years ago in Phoenix, and he commented that the problem with the evangelical church today is it's the largest nursery in the world, and that very few pastors or nursery workers have a vision and an understanding or blueprint for how to get the babies out of the nursery. Not only that, most of them don't want to. They just want to try to get more babies into the nursery, and they don't understand what the process is to help them grow up and get out of the diaper stage and get into first grade or second grade. And a lot of that can be 
uh, traced to a number of different factors, but that's the state that we're in today. Well, that's a different vision from what we have at West Houston Bible Church. My goal is to try to uh, move you from immaturity to maturity and to teach you the entire realm of Scripture. So the, there has to be a foundation, though. People have to have a, uh, a basic series, an orientation to what the Bible says and fundamental areas which provides that, that grounding that, that many of us have that enables us to grow and mature as believers. So I started off. There was a method to my structure here. In the first ten lessons, I called it Foundation for Life. And we focused on who God is. We focused on the exclusive claims of Scripture, that there is only one way to look at life, which is God's way. There's only one way to salvation. God provides the only way. That's why Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. That this claim of exclusivity challenges and is almost an affront to the unbeliever who wants to think that there are many ways to heaven, many ways to God, many paths to truth. And so I addressed that. So we went through the nature of the Bible. We traced that theme through the Scriptures. We looked at who God is. We looked at who Jesus Christ is. And we looked at salvation, all to show that under a biblical view of reality, there can only be one way to God. And that to come along and say there's multiple paths is essentially a self-contradiction. So the first ten lessons were oriented structurally more towards salvation, ending with uh, the, the doctrine of eternal security. Then I asked the question, now that you're saved, what do you do? After a person is saved, what comes next? After you are born as a spiritual infant... Regeneration, what comes next? We saw that salvation was simple. Salvation was based on faith alone in Christ alone. Now, what that means is fairly simple to understand, but its dynamics are more complex. At a rudimentary level, it means that the Bible teaches that there was a man named Jesus who was actually more than a man. He was eternal God who took on humanity, and he did that for the purpose of entering into human history and going to the cross and dying as our substitute. He paid for our sins. And we learn that if we believe that, if we trust in him as our Savior, if we trust exclusively in him, not adding anything else to it, not thinking that, oh, well, if I believe in Jesus and go to church or engage in certain rituals or get baptized or any of the other things that uh, people tend to add to faith, that if it's faith alone and it's in Christ alone, that we have eternal salvation. At that instant, we, are, we receive the imputation of righteousness, and God declares us to be just, and we are regenerate, and we have this new life in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. As a result of that, we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And we have this new spiritual life that has to be nourished and developed over time. Now, all these things that happen at the instant of salvation are non-experiential. And what do I mean by that? I mean you don't feel anything when it happens. Regeneration is not something that 
it you feel. When you're justified, you don't get zapped with some lightning bolt and shake or shatter or rock and roll or anything like that. In fact, the only way you come to understand the dynamics of what happened at salvation is to read the Bible, to study the Scriptures, to be taught the Word, so that over time you begin to understand all the things that happened at salvation. And that was true for most of us. I know that when I was just just six years old and my parents explained the gospel to me, I certainly didn't understand justification or imputation or regeneration. I just knew that, that Jesus died for me, and I, if I trusted in him, I would go to heaven. But as the years go by after that, we as believers need to study the dynamics of salvation, what happened, because it helps us to realize, to understand all that God gave us. Because at salvation, God gives us everything we need for the spiritual life. Ephesians 1.3 says, He has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Well, what are those blessings, and how do we exploit those blessings in our day-to-day life so that we can grow and we can mature. So that becomes the focus of this second part of the basic series, which I've called Foundation for Living. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I didn't come as a thief in the night to kill and destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. To give life and to give it abundantly. To give life is salvation. To give life abundantly is the exploitation of God's grace at salvation, learning the Word of God and applying it in every dimension of life so that we can experience the happiness, the peace, the stability, the joy that God promises the believer as part of his daily life in the midst of living in the devil's world, handling all kinds and all manners of suffering and adversity. So this is the focus of this second part, which I call a foundation for living, mastering the basics of the Christian life. So in part two of this uh, section, I have focused on, first of all, the basic, basic skills that we develop. And now I'm going to move to the second area, which is priestly duties. See, the basic skills dealt with Confession of sin, walking by the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. We discussed all of those. That lays the foundation. These are the skills we have to master in order to grow and mature. But then we have priestly duties. Because every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a priest to God at the instant of salvation. And and part of that has to do with prayer, which is what we'll begin studying this morning. And then we have ambassador responsibilities. We are royal ambassadors, and that entails a different set of responsibilities. All of these are basic basic things we must understand. Now, the reason I've structured this in this order is because there's a common misconception that comes across in, in, in too many churches and too many folks' minds, and that is that somehow... Spiritual growth is the result of performing those priestly duties and ambassadorial responsibilities. But that's putting the cart before the horse. The issue is, first of all, to master the spiritual skills, and that produces spiritual growth. And as you grow spiritually, then we, 
out of that spiritual growth function in our priestly duties and ambassadorial responsibilities. The priestly duties and ambassadorial responsibilities are part of our spiritual life, but they are not the things that produce spiritual growth. They are the result of spiritual growth. So you don't grow spiritually by witnessing, by giving, by prayer. Those are the result or consequences of learning the word, applying it, and growing spiritually. And then the last thing that I think I'll add to this, and at this point I'm still thinking this through, is what I call the foundational fundamentals. Foundational fundamentals. Many of you have heard the term fundamentalist. What is a fundamentalist? Well, that term has picked up a number of negative connotations in the last 30 or 40 years, but it has a historical basis, and that was a set of books that came out in, I believe it was about 1917, 1914, 15, somewhere in that era, called The Fundamentals of the Faith, and it was in contrast to the new teaching of what is considered 19th century Protestant liberalism. And in liberal theology, there was a rejection of the Word of God as God's revelation of Himself. It was just man's Word about God. There was a rejection of the deity of Christ, miracles. Uh, there was a rejection that Jesus isn't going to come back physically to the earth. And so the fundamentals of the faith focused on the infallibility of Scripture, the virgin birth, the person of Christ the substitutionary atoning work of Christ, part of which we've already covered in the, in the uh, Foundation for Life series, and uh, miracles and the second coming of Christ. So I thought some of those we still need to address. So as sort of a catch-all final category, we'll look at some of the foundational fundamentals just to uh, make sure we have brought all of the basic issues together in one study. So that gives you the overview of where we're going. We've talked about the basic skills up through last Sunday, and today I want to focus on priestly duties. So we have to begin by understanding what a priest is scripturally. So I have several points here on introduction to priesthood. Six points. First point, a priest is a member of the human race who represents a portion of the human race to God. This is the main idea of a priest. A priest represents someone or some group of people toward God. This is in contrast to a prophet. A prophet represents God to man. But the role of a priest is to represent an individual or a group of people or a portion of the human race to God. That may be that he represents an individual person, a family, a clan, or a nation. This is the role of a priest. A priest is also, point number two, a mediator. A priest is a mediator. A mediator is a go-between, someone who is interacting between two different parties, two different groups. Often a mediator functions within two parties who have some disagreement or enmity. And, of course, we're born in sin, and we are born at enmity with God. So the human race needs a mediator, a priest. Now, on the human level, a priest must be of the same nature as those he represents must be of the same nature as those he represents. And there are various passages there from Hebrews that emphasize this. Hebrews 7, 4 through 5. Hebrews seven fourteen, 
Hebrews 7.28, Hebrews 10.5, and 10.10-14. The mediators are the same nature. This is why Scripture says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse uh, 3, that there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And the emphasis there is the man Christ Jesus is because in order to represent us to God, Jesus Christ had to be fully human. So a priest is a mediator, a go-between. That's the function. So we understand that he's a member of the human race. He has to be a member of the human race in order to be a mediator, the first couple of points. And we see this developed in six verses of Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. That's the role of a priest. The high priest is the head or chief priest in an order of priests, in order that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So we see that part of what the priest does is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin to God. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and go astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. Now, this, of course, is relating mostly to Old Testament priesthood. We'll see that in the New Testament, because Christ has completed the payment for sin, that that dimension of priesthood is no longer uh, applicable. We no longer have to make a sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 5, verse 4. And no man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called by God. In other words, a priest is appointed by God. It's not a self-appointed role. Just as Aaron was. Aaron was a high priest appointed by God under the Mosaic law. Uh, Hebrews 5.5 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now isn't that a familiar verse to everyone here. Psalm 110, uh, one, excuse me, that's Psalm 2, 2 7. Psalm 2 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, and that's Psalm 110, 4. So these passages are those that are becoming familiar to many of us in our Tuesday night study of Hebrews. So priesthood is involves a mediator and God appoints the priesthood and God defines the role of the priesthood and it's going to differ from age to age or dispensation to dispensation according to the uh, nature of the role. Now to understand our role as priests in the church age we have to go back to look at the model of priesthood in the Old Testament because you don't always get uh, you don't go to one passage and find a delineation of everything that's related to a priesthood. So you go back and you look through the Old Testament in order to see what the various roles and functions of a priest were. Now, in the Old Testament, there were three different orders of priests. Three different orders of priests. And the first were patriarchal priests. Patriarchal priests. Patriarchal priests represented the family. And this was the prim- primary priesthood that functioned and operated from Adam 
up to the giving of the Mosaic law, that it is the father as the head of the family, the or the head of a clan, which would be a group of families within a tribe that would represent the family or the clan before God. It was the head of the family who would build the altar and would offer the sacrifice, and he functioned as the priest for the family. Patriarchal priesthood continued among Gentiles, and it even continued among Jews into the Mosaic Law era. You see uh, different times when patriarchs or heads of the family would build altars to God, uh, representing the clan or the family. For example, Gideon does this after the angel of the Lord appears to him in Judges chapter 6. He builds an altar to the Lord, and there is a reference there uh, in terms of his role with the family because immediately after he does that God gives him the responsibility of tearing down the idolatrous altar to Baal that his father had built and so you see that this altar that that uh, Gideon builds is an altar that is uh, that he's functioning as a priest in relationship to the Abizrite clan which is of the tribe of of Manasseh then you had the Melchizedekian priesthood, a different order of priesthood. Uh, that's the name Melchizedek, which means righteous king. It was probably a title rather than a personal name. And he was a Gentile. And he's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 19, and referenced again in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And his order was the order of a royal king or a, or a king-priest a royal priest or a king priest. And it is the order of Melchizedek, that concept of royal priest, that becomes the precedent for the kind of priesthood the Lord Jesus Christ has when you get into the New Testament because Jesus Christ was born of the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And in the structure of the Jewish nation, it was only Levites who could be, who could be priests. So you have the Levitical priesthood, Plus, you had this royal Melchizedekian priesthood, and it's clear from the writer of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is a king priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek represented different people in and sacrifices, not only those within his city, but also others that came within his periphery. And then with the giving of the Mosaic Law, which was a temporary law, you had a third Old Testament priesthood, the Aaronic high priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. In order to be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites were qualified to be priests. The ones who were not in the line of Aaron served in the temple, but not as priests. So you have the Melchizedekian priesthood, Excuse me, you have the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, and this was based on tribal affiliation and natural birth, not spiritual condition or regeneration. If you read through all the qualifications for Levitical priesthood, it never mentions that there, it never mentions spiritual qualifications, believing in the coming of the Messiah. It simply mentions physical qualifications, and these are listed in Leviticus chapters 6 through 8 and Leviticus chapters 21 through 22. Leviticus chapter 6 through 8 and 21 through 
22. So this gives us the three different orders of priesthood that you have in the Old Testament. Now, what did they do? What exactly did a priest do? This is our, our fourth point. Responsibilities of priests included, first of all, they offered sacrifices and offerings for the confession of sin. People would come to confess their sin, to be cleansed from that which rendered them ceremonially unclean, and they would bring burnt offerings and various other prescribed offerings to the tabernacle or the temple, and it was the responsibility of the priest to perform the sacrifice, to slit the throat of the lamb or the bullock or or, uh, to kill the birds, whatever the offering was, to uh, produce the burnt offering, the grain offerings. It was their responsibility to oversee the sacrifices and the offerings related to cleansing, confession of sin in the Old Testament. Furthermore, they were involved in the administration of the tithes and the free will offerings to God. The temple served as, as a bank. That's why it's referred to as the treasury of the house of the Lord. When the people brought their tithes, which were the mandatory offerings, there were three different tithes that were required under the Mosaic Law. Two were required every year. A third was required every third year. So actually, tithing involved 23 and a third percent of their income. This was brought to the storehouse or the treasury of the temple, and the priests were responsible for its administration to uh, do the accounting and then to make sure that the money was used in the proper in the proper way. So that was part of their their priestly duty to make sure that there was sound stewardship and fiscal and the money was handled handled in a fiscally responsible manner. They were also responsible for teaching, instructing, and preserving the text of Scripture. They were to make sure that the king, on a daily basis, sat down with priests as witnesses, and the king was supposed to make a handwritten copy of the Mosaic Law. This way, the king would be reminded on a daily basis of what God was expecting of the people. They were to go and travel throughout Israel teaching the Word of God and reminding people what the Word of God said. They were also responsible for making copies and preserving copies of the Word of God as it existed at that time. So they, their focus was on the teaching and preservation of the text of Scripture. They were also involved in the service in the temple. It was, they were involved in the public and corporate worship of the nation. The priest was involved in the public and corporate worship of the nation in the temple services. They were involved in uh, in the choirs that were developed in the temple. They were in, involved in the uh, in the orchestra, the musicians. Uh, they were involved in all these different aspects of corporate worship. It wasn't something that that was done just privately. They also, uh, the next point, their participation in public and corporate worship, and then they were involved in prayer in the sense of ceremonial prayer, representing the people, taking the petitions of the people before the Lord. So all of this was part of the uh, priesthood, the function, operation of the priesthood in the Old Testament. Now, when we come into the New Testament, we see that there are certain parallels that 
we f- b- between the Old Testament priesthood and New Testament priesthood. Primarily, point number five, in the New Testament, every believer is a priest unto God and represents himself to God. So there's no special class of Christian that is a priest. There, every believer is a priest. Every believer has direct access to God the Father. Every believer is functioning in the same roles as a priest in the Old Testament with some exceptions because those things that a priest did in the Old Testament that were related to sacrifice for sins and related to those things that were uh, pictures of what Christ accomplished on the cross are no longer part of that, uh, those duties and those responsibilities. Now, these duties in the new, for the New Testament priest relate to confession of sin. When we come to the Lord in confession, utilized in 1 John 1, 9, that is the function of our priesthood. It is the cleansing that is necessary in order for us to come before the Lord in prayer because sin disrupts our relationship with God. The uh, psalmist said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So there has to be a confession of sin and cleansing in order for us to uh, have a relationship with him. Furthermore, there has to be an administration of our resources in a way that honors God. That involves administration of our money. Good fiscal responsibility and stewardship is emphasized numerous times in the Scripture. The believer is to handle his money wisely so that he has the financial resources to support the local church ministry and to support missions and in order to help other believers who are in financial straits. And if we don't manage our money well, then all of a sudden needs come that we know we would like to uh, uh, help with, and we can't do it because, oops, we're in debt up to our eyeballs. Ephesians 5.16 says that we are to be redeeming the time because the days are evil. In other words, we have to manage our time wisely and our priorities so that so that there's time for Bible study, there's time to go to church, there's time to be part of the local church ministry and, and involved in Christian service. And if we are not good managers of time, then we end up wasting time. And we only have a finite amount of, of time in our lives to serve the Lord, and it's how well we learn to manage time that's part of the duties of our priesthood. That We saw that same kind of thing going on in the Old Testament. This also involves uh, participation in public and corporate worship, especially communion, as we did this morning. That was part of our priestly uh, function. So the coming together is a body of believers in corporate worship, singing uh, praises and hymns to God is all part of our priestly responsibility. The Bible really doesn't have a a view that it is normative for a Christian to just sit at home uh, reading his Bible, reading about the Bible on, on his own, and that that is... Uh, Normative for Christian worship or Christian growth. The Bible always talks about the corporate body of Christ and that it's important for people to come together and meet together on a regular basis as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are exceptions. It doesn't mean that it's, that you, uh, shouldn't or, or that there's no, uh, right 
uh, set of circumstances where people just are home alone. Sometimes due to illness, due to sickness, due to circumstances such as that, shut-ins, that's all they have. They can't gather together with other believers. But it's important that uh, we have some sort of ministry. We don't at this point, but it's something that we should pay attention to. There's some sort of ministry to shut-ins where the pastor or uh, others who are ordained in the congregation can go to the homes of those who are uh, shut-in, can't get out due to sickness, illness, age, whatever, and go and have the Lord's table for them because that's an important part of their of their spiritual life and their priesthood, and so there should be a provision made for that. But the emphasis is on the, in the Scriptures on the importance of public and corporate worship and not just isolation. When Paul went to different uh, cities and he went to Derby and Iconium and Lystra and he went on up to uh, Greece and he went to Philippi and to Berea, Varia, and he went to Athens and Corinth and all these other places, he didn't just say, okay, now everybody just go home and read what I've written. He commanded that and he structured them in local church congregations because it's the strength of the body of Christ coming together as a body that gives them the resources to send out missionaries to take care of the needs of those in the body and to minister to one another. And this is part of uh, what is involved in our priesthood. Uh, so there's corporate worship. There's prayer. Prayer is part of our priesthood. Uh, there's Bible reading, daily Bible readings. Just because you are a believer priest, you need to be reading your Bible on a regular basis. It is how God God works through His Word. And I'm going to spend some time talking about that in a couple of weeks because too often folks get the idea that I really shouldn't be reading my Bible. I might have questions I can't answer. Guess what, folks? I have questions I can't answer. Every time I read the Scripture, something comes up and I scratch my head and I say, okay, I'll get to that eventually. But we're to read our Bible. The level of biblical illiteracy in our culture today is just incredible. And that's among so-called believers. You start asking too many questions about what you know about the Bible, people don't know it because they don't read it. I mean, you ought to be reading at least a chapter a day. Uh, preferably, you should be reading about five or six chapters a day. And there's a Bible that's out called the Through the Bible in a Year Bible, which has Bible reading set up. And it's amazing what happens. I remember my first church, I, I, I encouraged that. And I had a man who had been in that church for years, had been a deacon for years. He was a chairman of deacons, and he, he had been a believer. He was 67 or 68 at the time, and he had never read his Bible. He read his Bible all the way through, and this guy caught on fire. I mean, he went from kind of lukewarm, positive volition to boiling point. He was just, he didn't, I said, man, I didn't realize the Bible taught half of that. He just got excited. And uh, it's the reading of the Scripture. It's the Word of God that's alive and powerful. Sure, you're going to have questions. Sure, there's mistranslations. But some of the modern translations, like New American Standard, New King James, just don't leave you with those kinds of confusing things that happened a generation ago when all you had was a King James and it was an outdated uh, English vocabulary and some of the translation was off. So uh, Bible reading is important. Bible study, making that priority to be in Bible class, to study the Word. So you need a pastor-teacher 
to teach the Word so that those questions are answered. At some level, every believer can sort of function like a uh, like a gold miner. You can go out and pan for gold, and you can you can get a little bit off the surface, and that's helpful. But uh, you need a mining engineer to dig deep and to find those rich veins of ore that give you that uh, value, valuable doctrine that allows you to really grow spiritually. So you have to have the reading, study, application, and preserva- uh, preservation of the text, as well as, and, and in the sense of preservation of the text, which they had in the Old Testament, uh, the, the believer priest in the church age functions that way by passing on the Word of God to his children and grandchildren. And something we've lost in our modern times because we live in such a hectic society is the uh, facet of sitting around the table at dinner with the whole family and then the conclusion of, of dinner having the father read a chapter of Scripture and then having the family talk about it. And if you go back a couple of generations in this country, that was normative in Christian families to do that, for the whole family to come together and take that time where the father was exercising his biblical responsibility to raise up the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and he was taking the time to oversee the spiritual development of the children in the family and and uh, how important that is and the the the, just the example it provides for the children as uh, a leader in the home. And we've lost that, and that's part of what has caused weakness in marriages and weaknesses in the family because the Word of God isn't at the center of the real family life, not just in terms of going to church and going to Bible class, but in terms of the real life, everyday experience of the family. All of this is related to our priesthood. So that's our introduction. We're going to look the next couple of Sundays at the responsibilities and duties of the believer priest, the basic responsibilities, and then we'll come back and look at our duties and responsibilities as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to be challenged by these Uh, what the scripture teaches about the fact that each one of us is a believer priest and as a priest we have duties and responsibilities and obligations in order to uh, serve you and that's the function of the priesthood is service to you Father we pray that uh, you would challenge us with what we study and that we would recognize that these are a part of our biblical responsibilities Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or unsure, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. If you're here this morning and you've never taken the opportunity to trust Christ as your Savior, you've never really understood the gospel before, this is your opportunity to secure your eternal destiny. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. The salvation is simple. It's expressed best in Acts 16:31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Right where you sit, you can trust in Christ as your Savior. God the Father, who's omniscient, knows what you're trusting in. And the instant you trust in Christ as your Savior, you receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You're declared just. You're regenerate. You receive the imputation of eternal life, which can never be taken from you. And you are always a child of God.
Father, we pray that you just challenge us with the things we studied this morning. The, the Holy Spirit would make these things real to us and that we would uh, put them into daily practice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.